when I asked my other docs, like, you know, I'm a physician. I ran a program over in family medicine as a program director and mm-hmm. I had all these great faculty. So I asked, mm-hmm. Hey, what would you do with a guy like me? Right. I'm five, seven, 145 pounds. I do cross like three to four times a yeah. week. Right. I don't eat Twinkies and donuts all day long. Right. I have mm-hmm. my occasional diet Coke habit, mm-hmm. but that gets me through the day. So what would you do with a guy like me? And they're like, well, you're, you're dieting, you're doing exercise. Maybe you should go on metformin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Why would you give me a pill? Right. It's like, I don't want to get on a pill. Right. There's got to be a better way. You still have, you know, just to think that, okay, you take metformin now, what happens five years from now, 10 years from now? Exactly. And we had initial studies of the diabetic prevention trial of use in prediabetes, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't very common. And said, so, look, I want to fix this myself. I want to take care of my own life. And I want to find out why, yeah. number one. And number two is how did I get this and how can I fix it? Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of a series of Pursuing Health stories. Here, I feature the inspiring stories of regular, everyday people who've used lifestyle to overcome some incredible health challenges. This week's story features Dr. Rob O, who shares his experience of being surprised by a prediabetes diagnosis and how that changed the way he thought about nutrition and health for himself, as well as for all of his patients. Before I dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Rob O. And we have sort it's sort of an interesting story. I don't know if I have told you this about how I first found you, but I think it was when I was in early med school and I was just starting to use Twitter and I saw that you were a family doctor and you did CrossFit and you're always posting about those types of things. And so I started following you on Twitter. Awesome. Well, that's <laughs> cool. Then, yeah. Years later, we finally met at a level one seminar that you yep. came to one of the level ones they were doing for physicians. And we've been talking about doing a podcast forever. So I'm right. so excited that the time has finally come. So thank you for being here. Oh, excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Julie. Well, let's just start off with sort of your path and how you got to, I know you are a family doctor, sports medicine doctor, Mm -hmm. uh, military doctor. I mean, why did you decide to go into medicine or what led you into medicine in the first place and what led you to the army? Yeah, those are great questions. So uh, interesting. I was actually wanted to be a psychiatrist, (laughs) which is kind of cool, right? But um, I went into business administration over at Boston University and the interesting, I took psychology. I was talking over with my wife and it was this psychology class that I took that really made me interested about human behavior, mm. right? How does humans respond to environment? What is nature versus nurture? And that really got me excited. Then business wasn't as exciting for me. <laughs> I actually switched my major. Okay. Decided to go to pre and decided to want to go into like psychology, psychiatry. And wow. that kind of started launching that off. Mm-hmm. Um, then I actually worked in a, a, a locked mental health unit for a couple of years mm-hmm. during that transition from um, med school and from undergrad. 
Okay. And so with that, I've seen all the sickest of sick people who are bipolar, people got admitted and into locked units. And I realized that we don't really help them fix anything that mm-hmm. we just kind of put bandages and symptoms mm-hmm. uh, of their symptoms. And then it's just kind of like a revolving door. And it's not to say that psychiatry doesn't help people, but it's really based on medications. And it's not really about the human behavior as much. It's about mm-hmm. how to control human behavior or certain medications and certain therapies. So I really kind of got a little jaded with psychiatry and nothing to say wrong about psychiatry, but I really wanted to talk with people, communicate, have relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And so when I got into medical school, I went into primary care. And, and it's really weird because Boston University didn't even have a department of primary care at all. Wow. So they were like on the forefront of this whole primary care revolution. Wow, that's amazing. And definitely what a great place to be able to talk to people and have long-term relationships with people. Yeah, um, exactly. But and, also, and to help them. Yeah, exactly. And I also, but also I wonder, so you talk about in psychiatry being a little bit jaded by putting band-aids on problems and not necessarily helping them. And I'm sure maybe you had some of the same sentiments once you got into family medicine, just with sort of how the standard of care is practiced. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. Oh yeah, we definitely (laughs) have to open that. Um, And I know you have a a personal story with that as well, but, um, but then how, how did you go into the army right away or when did you end up entering the military? Well, when I went to Boston University back then in the 90s, the tuition was still 45000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I came from a poor background. My mom couldn't afford it. I didn't have money. I took a lot of loans. Mm-hmm. So when I took my first loan of $30,000, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, How can I wow. afford this? I'm going to have a mortgage by the time I get out of med school. <laughs> so I, I sold myself to the army. I said, hey, take me. <laughs> and they willingly took me. And then I, I put on the uniform and the rest was history. 22 yeah. years later. Yeah. 22 years. That's incredible. And you just yeah. recently retired from the just retired mm-hmm. um, in September. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you for all of your service. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk about, you know, first entering family medicine, what, what it was like to practice and was it everything that you had expected it to be, or what were some of the, the things you loved about it or some of the challenges? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you coming right out of family medicine residency, I, I think some of the aspects that we had in medicine is probably very similar to what you see. Mm-hmm. And back when I graduated in the early 2000s um, from family medicine residency program, um, it was still, you know, a disease oriented treated system, right? You mm-hmm. find a fix, find a solution and try to fix it or find a problem and try to fix it. Mm-hmm. I call it the find it and fix it solution. Yeah. <laughs> and we also know that, you know, that doesn't really work in primary care to some extent because we get this model of prevention and primary care and secondary prevention. And then we see what comes on the outside and we have medications and more medications and more what I call pills, potions, and procedures that we do to people, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And me as a sports medicine physician, I still do a lot of pills and potions mm-hmm. and procedures, but it's not really as much because that's really, I don't think that's what gives health. Mm-hmm. And what I appreciate about what you're focused on is how to get to that health, right? And that's always been my pursuit to say, how do I get people to the optimal health mm-hmm. with or without medications? It may be both, but mm-hmm. how do I get them to the optimal health? And yeah. primary care was really meant to me, I think, focused on the relationship and holistic health and how to yeah. get bring health and healing to everything of their whole environment. So 
that that's what was I thought. And when I went into medicine, as you can see, it was a lot of pill pushing. <laughs> so <laughs> right, right. Um, and and then at some point you you know, you, even though you had this outlook of trying to help use whatever tools you had to try to help your patients be as healthy as possible. Like you said, a lot of times just sort of the standard of care, what was happening was pill pushing, but you also then had, um, an experience where you thought you were doing everything right and living a healthy lifestyle, you know, doing, I think at the time you were doing CrossFit and already, you know, eating well. So you thought, and taking care of yourself. And then you found out that maybe that wasn't the case. So yeah, talk us through, talk us through your personal story there. Yeah. That's to me, that's the life changing part of, of what happened to me mm-hmm. it was in 2011, roughly. But just to predate that I found, I found in 2011, I found out I had prediabetes and that's was really shocking to me because mm-hmm. let's predate that a little bit more of uh, 2005 and 2006. So this is during the Iraq war. I got sent to war. I was a physician with one of the units downrange. We went mm-hmm. down into Kirkuk and we, we plopped there for 15 months. And that was a 15 month deployment. It was mm-hmm. miserable at times as it was like the best of times, the worst of times, right? <laughs> and so things are there. We're seeing all this stuff and there's moments of chaos and, and war and tragedy, but there's also moments of downtime. Mm-hmm. And there's really moments of like, okay, I got nothing to do today. Let me go out to the gym and work out. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do, right? We just work out and then we take care of patients and we respond to trauma and we go work out again because there's nothing else to do, right? It's like Groundhog's Day over and over. Yeah. And so one day, um, you know, my routine was getting stale. I was just doing regular, you know, running on a treadmill. It's hot in Iraq. You don't want to run outside. Yeah, <laughs> so, that sounds rough. <laughs> running a treadmill, do some pump, some iron, do some, you know, you know, uh-huh. lift, lift those weights and, and, you know, work on my mirror muscles, my pecs and my quads. Right. And work on those muscles. Your bicep curls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I thought, yeah. Oh, what health and fitness was. And then this guy says, Hey, let's try this thing called CrossFit. I was like, what the heck is that? Mm-hmm. So I started my CrossFit journey there and we can talk more about that. But with that, and that was pretty early for cross. I mean, obviously military caught onto it much more quickly, but 2007 was pretty, that was when you started. It was pretty early. Um, yeah, it was on, insight. The, it was mm-hmm. OG. It was like text-based. I commented, watched a video, you know, figured yeah. out a lift and tried it in the gym. Right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of Watch a video. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And so it was really, really the old school CrossFit style. And that's when kettlebells, nobody knew what a kettlebell was and all of a sudden we didn't have any kettlebells in the gym. So all of those <laughs> things uh, that we did, and then we really caught on to that. So that that was previous to um, all of that in 2007, and I continued that. You know, we tried to eat healthy. You know, I was 35. I thought I was eating healthy, and then all of a sudden I get diagnosed with prediabetes. Hmm. And the funny thing is, is before I went to war, you know, I did a, a I went to insurance company to get a rider on my insurance. Mm-hmm. just to ensure that if anything happens to me, my wife and my family would be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So they said, Hey, we normally re- require a medical exam, but we're going to forego it. Cause you don't smoke. You're mm-hmm. pretty healthy. You're in the military. Mm-hmm. So for let's forego it. And when you come back from the war, let's figure out um, your exam. So we lower the rates. Mm-hmm. So I did that. So I didn't think much of it. So finally, when I came back from the war uh, late 2007, um, I decided to finally go under my medical exam. 
Mm-hmm. And then they called me. They, this is the guy with a little briefcase comes over with his yeah. little EKG machine and pulls his blood and said, yeah, you should be fine. <laughs> Does his questionnaire and he goes off. And then late, later on, when they come back to tell me what my rates were, they said, well, you know, you should probably stick with your current rates because the way your risk is, your rates would probably be higher. Wow. And then I'll say, well, what's that risk? Yeah. Said, well, your A1C was 5.4. And I was like, what? what? That's normal, right? And I was yeah. like, that's really normal for me. What are you talking about? That's crazy. You guys don't know anything you're talking about, right? And here I yeah. thought, right? Yeah. I said, no, no, you're, you're a little bit at risk. And so uh, I would just stick with the regular plan. And little, little that I knew it back then is the actuarians probably have a better idea of life expectancy <laughs> than any yeah. one of us. And little did we know that right around 5.3, 5.4 A1C, that's when your increased risk goes up for getting diabetes. Mm. And so it, it already, already was there in 2006. And the question was why? And then we can go into why I think it was. But then mm-hmm. in 2010 and 2011, when I realized that, hey, maybe this has something to do with it, I got my normal routine medical exam. And during that time, nobody tested for A1Cs during that time. Mm-hmm. But I asked my you're doctor. You're young, yeah. Yeah, you're young. I'm young, I'm 35, no risk factors. I'm, at a, I'm the same weight that I was now, uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, hey, could you just add an A1C? And so they added it and it was 6.2. Wow. Like, what the heck? <laughs> like, and that's when prediabetes was a sort of a thing back then. Mm-hmm. And so I got really freaked out and that really changed my life. And, and that really changed the concept of what I thought, what medicine was about and how I could fix health, right? Because yeah. with that diagnosis in 2011, that was such a key change for me. Um, and when I asked my other docs, like, you know, I'm a physician, I ran a program over in family medicine, I was a program director, and mm-hmm. I had all these great faculty. So I asked, mm-hmm. hey, what would you do with a guy like me, right? I'm 5'7", 145 pounds. I work, I do cross like three to four times a yeah. week, right? I don't eat Twinkies and donuts all day long, right? I have mm-hmm. my occasional Diet Coke habit, mm-hmm. but that gets me through the day. So what would you do with a guy like me? And they're like, well... You're, you're dieting, you're doing exercise, maybe you should go on metformin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Why would you give me a pill, right? It's like, I don't want to get on a pill. Right, there's got to be a better way. You still have, you know, just to think that, okay, you take metformin now, what happens five years from now, 10 years from now? Exactly. And nobody, I, we had initial studies of the diabetic prevention trial of, mm-hmm. of use in prediabetes, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't very common. And said, look, I want to fix this myself. I want to take care of my own life. And I want to find out why, number one. And number two is how did I get this? And then how can I fix it, right? And so during that time frame, 2011, um, Rob Wolf had a book called The Paleo Diet. Mm -hmm. I said, what the hell? I'm just going to read it, (laughs) right? Yeah. And did it. Do you remember how you found it or how you heard of it? I think it was so popular in the CrossFit circles, right? Every time I go to my CrossFit gym, I read it on, you know, I saw Gary Tobbs video years ago and I just heard about it. So I said, you know, I'm going to try it. I saw all the the listservs and people Mm -hmm. are talking about it. And so I'm going to try Robo's book and I read Mm -hmm. it. And then in that book, it says, why, why not just give 30 days a chance? It mm-hmm. could change your life. I was like, okay, well, sure, why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah, why not? It's worth so I a just shot. did it. Better than metformin, right? And so, so I gave it a shot. And then literally, literally, I had my A1C checked about a month after going on that diet. It went back to 5.4, which is wow. crazy. So it changed like a whole Very point. dramatic. 
just on diet alone. And that was really took, took off. Uh, I studied everything I could to figure out what happened and why it happened. And it, it just took me on that journey. Wow. That's incredible. Well, thank goodness that you added on that A1C that day um, no, no and, and started this whole journey for you and that you were doing CrossFit and, and had so many resources at your fingertips. What are, as you were starting to learn this and uncover this, I mean, you're a practicing family physician. You're taking care of a ton of patients who have diabetes or prediabetes. Yeah. I mean, what were your thoughts about, you know, how come we don't have this information in our mainstream education or how come we aren't, um, we aren't able to help people really address the root cause in a more widespread way. Yeah, I think that was a struggle for me because here I was in the, uh, the kind of the epitome of academic medicine. I'm teaching mm-hmm. residents how to think yeah. through medicine. And here I'm coming with a confrontation that my N of one trial has done works and I, nothing has been written about it. Mm-hmm. So, so what, I, what I found out is that one, we're not the best at diagnosing prediabetes. That's mm-hmm. the number one thing. Even if we do see it, we don't do anything about it. And, and the problem is because we don't know what to do about it. I think we're so um, misunderstood about the, the value of nutrition and exercise mm-hmm. and it becomes just lip service that we just do in the, in the, in the 20 minutes appointments mm-hmm. that we have. And then we just jump to what we're familiar with and we're just not taught how to think differently. We're not taught how to think holistically. We're not given the, the tools to provide nutrition advice. We're not giving the tools to provide exercise advice, mm-hmm. even as a physician. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get so, at least what I see is I think people do get jaded to the point where they say, well, you know, we can talk about nutrition and exercise all the time, but nobody really ever, it never really works or people don't do it or they don't, they come back and nothing's changed. And so it's almost like you said, lip service, like we'll talk about this, but I know you're going to come back and we're going to talk about medication sometime soon. And so it's almost like a lot of times we don't believe in ourselves or in our patients enough that they or, or don't have the right information for them um, to be able to really take this into their own hands. Yeah. And I think we're also modeling what we've seen in our clinics, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen our clinicians and our providers do the same exact same thing. They just say, Hey, focus on nutrition or diet and exercise is how mm-hmm. we say it. we write in our little notes and we counsel about diet and exercise. And we check <laughs> the little boxes, but then, then we get hammered by why didn't you prescribe X, Y, Z drugs for yeah. X, Y, Z uh, disease mm-hmm. process versus mm-hmm. Why did you let them go with a blood pressure of 145 over 90, right? Mm-hmm. And you get all of these concepts and you get jaded That's by true. the way you look at medicine. And I think we've just been taught that. And in medical schools, I wasn't taught anything about nutrition and how to mm-hmm. deliver that advice. So I think it's a whole systematic issues for medical education period. Oh, for sure. So what were some of the most profound things that you learned through your own research and how do you now think about diabetes and prediabetes? Um, for yourself or when you are seeing a patient who's maybe just starting down this path? Yeah. So first thing I learned is uh, number one, trust your patient, right? Mm-hmm. If they feel something is wrong, if they have some intuition, you might want, you might want to go with it, right? As a clinician, as a physician, I probably had a little more influence of letting my doctors do the tests that they, I needed to, yeah. them to do. But sometimes some patients may not have that empowerment to do that. So number one, I think I learned that your N of one trial is really important for the mm-hmm. N of one, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you treat the person as an individual, not, a, not of a mass of research and studies that may not be meaningful for the, this one person. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I learned. The second thing I learned with all that research 
was that that statins may have been linked to causing my glucose intolerance and prediabetes. Well, and so that you was were a on key statins pre previously. Yeah. And for, I was on for 10 years for it before it previously. And I think there's something to that link of statins and diabetes and, mm -hmm. and multiple studies have now confirmed the small, but increased risk for that. And so I realized that, that I may not have any risk factors. I may look fine, but it, it doesn't mean that I don't have prediabetes. So mm -hmm. you can't really judge a book by its cover that you sure. might want to look for that piece. And the second thing I really learned is that this is the one time in diabetes prevention that you can actually prevent them from going to diabetes. This is what we're meant to do for family physicians. <laughs> find the issues, find the symptoms, diagnose the problem, and then find a solution to help them either reverse or change a trajectory to that health. Mm -hmm. So this is one area where I think we could make a difference. And what I've learned is that we're terrible at it for whatever reason. We're just terrible yeah. at it. And that's, that has been my mission to kind of just, hey, educate, educate to look for the markers. And it's really been driving what I've been doing in terms of my research and my studies. Mm -hmm. And how is that, what influence do you think that has had on um, the residents that you teach too? Because like you said, a lot of times we just do what we see or what, what people around us, but you have to be a little bit, um, I guess a little bit against the grain in terms of what you're teaching yeah. or what people are expecting. So how has that been received? Yeah, I think, I think it's received well. So we, I've always been an evidence-based medicine proponent, right? And we always hear mm -hmm. that term lobbied around and it's mm -hmm. had its heyday, but you know, with evidence-based medicine, there is an individual portion piece of that, right? That is not the evidence-based medicine is for the individual patient sitting in front of you, mm -hmm. not for anything else. That's how we use evidence-based medicine. And so when I bring this up to residents, I say, how do we change the trajectory of someone's life if you're frustrated or angry or upset? Why are you frustrated, angry, and upset? Mm -hmm. And then look at the, how the flip side is, how can you put them and empower them into their own health? And how do you flip the script to empower them to take care of the health? Because that's what's going to make the difference. It's not me telling them to diet exercise. It's me saying that diet exercise could help you and them understanding that piece, flipping that switch and then moving forward into their journey. And so the, to me is to find what's the switch to flip and how do I help them flip that switch into getting that motivation back to take care of their health. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, been, it's been a struggle, but it's always been rewarding to see that when they're, the residence light bulbs uh, flip mm -hmm. and they say, oh, oh, that makes sense, right? And That's yes, amazing. you can use the evidence to help patients in a different way that you've never been taught before. So it is rewarding in that sense. It's so rewarding. And it's so true that, you know, we have all these randomized controlled trials that tell us one thing, but it has to be applied to the patient sitting in front of you. And that end of one experiment Absolutely. is so important, not only just to get it right for them, but for them to feel empowered and have buy-in and, and understand how their own bodies work and how they're responding to whatever changes they may be making. Yeah. Medicine has been totally paternalistic, right? And we need to help empower patients and empower people to take care of their own health. And really mm -hmm. most of the health, as you know, comes from within. It's mm -hmm. not me that does anything, right? right? It's just me maybe giving you support and advice and maybe say, hey, go listen to this and think through this. And what do you mm -hmm. want your health for, mm -hmm. right? What's important for your health? Why do you want to do these things? That mm -hmm. makes them put that switch and empowers them to do and change their lives. And that was why I went to medicine. And that's the most rewarding part I get still today for doing medicine. Completely. Totally. 
what were so once you start did paleo for a month yeah. or two, you notice a big change in your A1C. Um, can you just talk about what changes you noticed, other changes you noticed to your health or how you felt, and then how your own personal nutrition or lifestyle has changed even since that time? Yeah, you know what I noticed is that I lost weight. I didn't lose really mm-hmm. weight. I'm one of those that I I want to gain like muscle mass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of those guys, right? No matter yeah. how many snatches I do and how many yeah. deadlifts I try to do, I can only gain that much, right? So <laughs> my body was just built that way. But there's a lot of people who are jealous of you, I'm sure. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so I've been always pretty stable, but I've lost mm-hmm. weight, which was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. And then what I secondly noticed, I lost on my waist circumference. My mm-hmm. pants were feeling better, mm-hmm. which is like surprising. And so I've actually went down a pant size because since then. And I've never turned back since 2011, mm-hmm. right? I went down from a 32 waist to now like a 30 waist, which is crazy, right? Yeah. So, and, and that's one thing I found out that is just really important in this metabolic syndrome that we look at is waist circumference. Mm-hmm. You may not even lose any specific weight, but then you notice in the way you feel, and I wasn't as tired as much, that, that post-lunch uh, coma that we all get from eating mm-hmm. a lot of carbs and refined sugars and yes. carbohydrates, I was gone. I was like, yes. what is this? Like, why am I having so much energy? So that was gone. Um, and it made food taste better, right? So mm-hmm. everything that's processed that I had, like I even quit Splenda, right? I was like, I'm done with Splenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything started to taste better. I could taste the sugars in the fruit, the natural sugars in like a strawberry. I could actually taste food. I can actually tell when people put sugar into food products. Yes. I was like, this is gross. too sweet. This <laughs> yeah. So, so it made, it made food actually better for me. So mm-hmm. that was really cool. So it made me less tired, made food better for me. Um, and it was just rewarding to see your body change in front of your, in front of like within a month, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said to you about waist circumference, because it's true. There's so many different factors that you can track on when you're trying to catch metabolic syndrome early. And a lot of times we don't really look at all of them. I mean, we're checking lipids or A1C sometimes, but um, you know, checking waist circumference is something that can be really useful or that waist to hip ratio. Yeah. Blood pressure. To, to me, it's probably one of the better vital signs that we can think through Yeah, even blood pressure sometimes. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. blood pressure is great. And I think it's very valid uh, in pulse, but imagine if we do a waist circumference on everybody and we have normative charts related mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. and showing that they're at increased risk and gaining not only weight, but waist circumference. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that key um, sign to let you dig further. Okay. Maybe let's look for um, metabolic syndrome. Let's look for liver disease. Let's look for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Let's see if your liver has been damaged. Let's look at, look at your kidneys, look at all mm-hmm. of the above and that just go beyond just the regular lipid panel. Right. Cause yeah we're kind of, to me, I'm kind of beyond that. Yes. Yes, definitely. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Did you notice changes to your lipids? What else have you learned about lipids and where you, did you end up coming off of your statin at some point? Yeah. So, so interesting thing is, is the end of one study is not really precise. So Mm -hmm. I stopped my statin and did paleo at the same time. So (laughs) I didn't know what happened. So my LDL obviously went up. My LDL yeah. went up, but what I really found out, my triglyceride to HDL ratio dropped dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's another easy marker of insulin resistance is your mm-hmm. triglyceride to HDL ratio. Mm-hmm. And that went two to one to almost one to one. So my triglyceride, which was normal, like a hundred and something went down to like 70 or 60 and my HDL went to like 80 to 90. Wow. 
which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is all from just nutrition and Mm -hmm. continuing CrossFit. Um, When I was doing CrossFit, my triglycerides were in the hundreds. My HDLs were in the forties to fifties, right? Kind of Mm -hmm. that low, low normal Mm -hmm. standpoint. But as soon as I switched to um, paleo and really have a low carb diet, then that's that, that numbers switch. It Mm -hmm. completely flipped. And what I've learned now, that's, that's a true marker of insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And your triglyceride to HDL ratio. I look at that all the time. That's why I still get fasting lipids. Yeah. Uh, even though most of the people say you don't need fasting lipids for LDL. True, but you need it for triglycerides. For triglycerides, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, have you noticed, so, so you obviously found this approach to work really well for you, at basically paleo, low carb. Is that something that you routinely recommend to patients or have you had patients respond differently and need to make adjustments to different diets for their end of one experiments. So when I initially started, when I found out, Hey, this is thing is working. I thought everything was magic. Right. So it's like, yes. Hey, just throw a little paleo and it'll fix everything. It'll fix everything. Yeah. It'll fix everything. Right. And I was just kind of like those, like, uh, you can do this. Yeah. I did it. And, and of course, yeah, that didn't work which is natural to do. Right. When something yeah. is so life changing for you, you just want everyone else to experience that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's great. Some people really latch onto it. Some people are like, what are you talking about, doc? Yeah. Right. So you, you always have to individualize it. So what I've learned is you have to individualize what, what I, what I do. And the most profound um, changes that I've made is in my sports medicine clinic, which is kind of mm-hmm. crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. So when people come with a lot of musculoskeletal pain, when I basically say, Hey, I can help you get better. But when I look at their weight and they're overweight, I, I really say, Hey, yeah. you're a little bit overweight. Um, weight loss will help your knees and weight loss will help you do better. Mm-hmm. And so when I have that conversation, that just opens that conversation. And when they say, I've tried every exercise to get better and all that mm-hmm. stuff and say, well, it's really not about exercise per se. It's really more about food and, and mm-hmm. that you can control. And then I dive in a little further if they're interested. If they're not interested, I just stop. There's no mm-hmm. point in pushing an agenda if they're not interested. If they're not ready. But yeah. if I open, yeah, if they open that door and they're interested, I started about low carb. I talk about different diets and I said, hey, this is what's worked for me. I've noticed you have diabetes. We can start looking at taking some off some medications if you want. And, mm-hmm. But you have to work on this and work closely with me or another doctor to supervise mm-hmm. your deep prescription of insulin, deep prescription mm-hmm. of medications. Mm-hmm. And people really love it. And, mm-hmm. and that's really cool. If they have no inkling and just do that and they just want a medication, it's okay. I, I, I meet them where they are mm-hmm. and provide them the healing that I can and then wait for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's how I produce that, that kind of change. And, and I know that low carb doesn't work for everybody, but low carb works for a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. with, uh, those with diabetes. Especially, diabetes. yeah, metabolic syndrome and diabetes is a yes. really great place to start. Um, and I'm sure it's also been very powerful for you to be able to share your own story, your own experience with patients too. Cause a lot of times I think it's hard for them to maybe feel like you can relate as their doctor and knowing that you've been through it, I think, um, has probably been powerful. Has, has that, do you think that's been the case? Yeah, I think, um, I think I, I do better when I have my own ailments, right? So <laughs> I, I look up things more. I, I get more interested in my own ailments and yeah. I try to fix myself. That's why I got interested in shoulders for CrossFit. I got interested yeah. in uh, issues with diabetes. I got interested in stands and LDLs because I wanted to help myself, right? Yeah. And so just like I, I'm sure with your injuries with your Achilles, you're a big probably understanding of what, what's the best treatments. And and then you can talk to your people, your 
and your mm -hmm. patience about what my experience were and how I approach things. And you just have that more credibility and, and just this vulnerability of saying that, Hey, I, I w I've been through your shoes. I know exactly what it's like and, and mm -hmm. how can I help support you? Mm -hmm. That's so true. So true. So if you could go back or let me not go back just right now, like if you had a magic wand and you could change how we do primary care, how we take care of, of um, patients who may be having metabolic syndrome or some, some aspect of prediabetes or going down that path, what, what do you think would be the most important changes that we make either as a medical system or as a society in order to help those people? Well, I think, <laughs> I think it's the, it, well, I, I've been thinking about it a lot because I think yeah. medicine's broken, right? It's, it's the financial yeah. system. Yeah. It's the payment system. It's the incentives that we place on our physicians. Mm -hmm. If you incentivize to make a widget, they'll make a widget, right? Mm -hmm. If you incentivize to do 99214s in our views, they'll make 99214s in our views. Yeah. You don't get a lot of 99214s with dietary counseling and stuff. You don't get paid that much. Mm -hmm. Like things like dry needling that you can do in the clinic, you can't even get paid for it. Because mm -hmm. you can inject the medicine, right? True. So you have to inject the medicine to then get paid for it. So <laughs> it's so it's, messed up. It's, it's warped, so right? It's so true. And, and for so people the listening, the, the 99214 is just a visit type. So it's like a higher billing code that you can get if you do more things in the visit or spend more time. Yeah. Um, and, and the financial models are warped. And that's what we need to change. And I really do think that direct primary care has a way forward as because mm -hmm. it puts the empowerment back into the individual to take care of their own health and to, mm -hmm. to be partners in their health, just like we need to be. Right. The incentives are definitely more aligned. So I think there's a lot of potential yeah. there for sure. All right. Well, um, oh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was CGMs. Have you been using CGMs much for yourself or continuous glucose monitors or for your patients? Is that something that you have found to be helpful? Yeah, I, I biohack a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I found out is you got to be your own proponent for health, right? And mm -hmm. you have to be uh, your own advocate. And just like in anything else is you want things to change, you got to be your own advocate for that change. Mm -hmm. And so I convinced one of my uh, physicians to prescribe me a, a free solid Libra. Mm -hmm. And I played around with it for probably a good three months. And really it was fascinating to see just the, the amounts mm -hmm. of excursions you get with different type of food mm -hmm. and it changes behaviors. And now I think I understand it to where I don't do it religiously, but I have it available if I need yeah. to, um, because it's, it can be cost prohibitive, um, mm -hmm. but I've posted about it. I, I put in, I've tried experiments on myself on like uh, Coke zeros versus other types of non, you know, mm -hmm. nutritive sweeteners and see if it affects it. I've done experiments on what type of, carbs, I've done experience with alcohol, all of the above, right? mm -hmm. <laughs> and figure out what does it do to do my, uh, my excursions and how does stress response, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that stress increases cortisol level. And it's crazy, like important meetings, important things, you can see my blood sugar rise mm -hmm. during those times when I have these important meetings I'm preparing for, mm -hmm. or the stresses of that meeting. And it goes right, up to you're like, sleep deprived and, and, and stressed. You're sleep yeah. deprived, stressed. Then you have a Coke Zero. Then what happens? <laughs> All of the above, right? So, yeah, it's, a it's great tool to for end of one experiments. That's for yeah. sure. And then with that, I've been prescribing to my patients. I said, mm -hmm. "Hey, you want to give this a try? You're going to have to pay out of pocket, but this is the benefits of it." And and the people who try it continue on it, and that's the mm -hmm. great thing. It's they understand it makes a difference, and um, 
they pay for it out of their own pocket if they can afford it. I actually tried to get it approved through the military system and they denied it, which is kind of crazy, right? So trying to help someone's health, yeah, denying it because there's no indications for the non-type 1 diabetes with, hmm. you know, I don't even know what the indications are for it, but type 1 diabetes really. Gosh, well, I'm hoping that that will change soon because obviously um, being able to have that type of information and change behaviors early on is going to save a lot more costs in the long run. Um, and I, I do see them becoming a lot more popular. So I'm hopeful that they'll be reimbursed. So I think that's more. where I think where you, you're out of the reimbursement system or the incentives of your employee and you can give them the power to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it will, I think it will change. There'll be more studies out to do that, but mm-hmm. in a direct primary care model, you can definitely prescribe it. No problem. And they just have to pay out of pocket mm-hmm. It is a primitive in some, some sense for some people. So it may be hard for all people to do it. Yeah. But the more people who do it, then it's probably going to be cheaper overall. The other sure. thing I learned is about is response to exercise. I'm always curious yeah. about response to exercise. The hyperglycemic response to exercise is fascinating to me. I've never thought that before. It's amazing, so, right? Especially a super short, intense workout. Yeah. You can get a big blood sugar spike there. Yeah. I did an army fitness test and went up to 220. Wow. Yeah. So if, if you tested me then at that yeah. point, you'd be labeled me a diabetic, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. It's like context how, how is everything. Went, right? <laughs> wow. Um, well, that's great. I'm so glad to hear how you've used your own personal experience to really motivate um, learning more about this and then being able to actually transform so many more lives, whether it's through your patients or residents that you're teaching or your colleagues. Um, and so we, you know, I think for a lot of us, personal experience definitely drives our behavior a lot more, but I think both of us wish that we would have gotten this information early on in med school and that it would be more of the standard of care and not something that we'd have to go seek out on our own. So, um, as we wrap up, I have three questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. So the first one is what are the three things that you do now on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Yeah, that, that's a, always a great question, Julia. And I, I know I've listened to your podcast and I, and <laughs> I think I'm always ready for it, but it just, <laughs> well, I think sleep is the number one. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine how the army functions on like four, four and a half hours of sleep or anybody. No. And so I think optimizing sleep is really important. That really is the, the food and the, what I call the food for your brain, right? Your brain mm-hmm. food. And mm-hmm. you need your brain to function through the day and you get healthy. So, so sleep is really important. What's your sleep routine? Do you, um, have you had trouble getting enough sleep or do you do anything in particular to make sure you get yeah, good I quality think, and quantity of sleep? I think getting to the bed on time is very important. That's the hardest right? part, right? Yeah. Then it really messes up the next day because your day usually starts at the same time every day. Mm-hmm. So we can control it, but sometimes obviously life happens or we can't. Mm-hmm. So getting to bed on, on the right time is really important. Mm-hmm. I think also stresses at work um, for me is really hard. Um, it keeps me up at night at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I do wake up and I feel like sometimes it's hard to get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I use other modalities like um, Headspace or Calm to kind of get through that, mm-hmm. kind of that mindful exercise to kind of get you back into sleep without working on the stresses of life too much. Mm-hmm. So that's been helpful. So yeah, it's, sleep has always been hard. It's, it's a tough one in, in the world that we live in, but so, so important, like you said. 
Yeah. All right. Two and more. Second, sorry. Two more. Yeah. And then the uh, second thing is obviously nutrition. Um, mm-hmm. Nutrition is so important for health and getting back to what we've been designed to eat. Right. So I don't think we've been designed to eat donuts and pop tarts, but mm-hmm. are we designed to eat vegetables and fruits and those things. Right. Yeah. And then to really look at that and how to control that with my metabolic dysfunction is the carbs that I look at, I have to look at at the grain of salt, right? Mm-hmm. That I can't have that that carb that I needed or wanted back in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I always have to look at that. And I'll, I'll have my cheats and enjoy a cake or whatever, but I try to really limit that piece because I know it affects my health. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing is is staying healthy and, and, and how to stay healthy. Uh, I think it's relationships. I used to think it's exercise, yeah. right? And I, I mm-hmm. say, you know, exercise is important, but I think doing daily life with relationships can meet that exercise. For example, we went snowshoeing yesterday. That's, oh, fun. And that was so fun, right? At, at the mountain and, and it was great. And, but we, we did it, you know, physically distanced with friends and families mm-hmm. that, that we have. And so we could get to the mountain, go outside mm-hmm. and enjoy nature. And so that relationship will build that, that camaraderie and just to have that people. And, so we, we're, we're, we're social beings and we need mm-hmm. to be social. And so I think that's relationship, even over exercise, mm-hmm. even though I love exercise. I totally agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As much as I love exercise too, um, and even nutrition and sleep, like I almost would put relationships first now, just um, knowing how important that is, you know, because if you don't feel, if you don't have the right people around you and you're you know, your heart isn't right, then all the other things that you can do are never going to, yeah. you know, they're just icing on the cake. So, yeah. um, so I love that you said that. And I think, you know, just to expand it further, if I can add a fourth is something called Ikigai, which I've sort of yes, learned. Yes, perfect. Know if you that is, <laughs> I love that. Ikigai is about happiness, right? It's yes. a Japanese word for finding mm-hmm. happiness. And, and I, I saw this and I read about it and I was like, wow, this is really right on. Mm-hmm. And so I love that concept and I can explain it if you, if you're. Yeah, go ahead. I love, I, I just think of the Venn diagram. I can't remember all the things, but something about what you love to do, what you're good at, what the world needs or something that fills a need for the world or for people. Yeah. So and I where those this, all overlap. Yeah. The Venn diagram at the top is what you love, right? Mm-hmm. So you could say, I, I love CrossFit, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the bottom of that Venn diagram is what you can get paid for. Mm-hmm. I can't get paid for doing CrossFit, right? So that right. never will make my guy. <laughs> Then the other thing is what you're really good at, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're really good at it and you can get paid for it, that could be like your profession, right? Mm-hmm. If you're really good at medicine, get paid for it, great. Mm-hmm. The other half is really what, what the world needs is that missional mm-hmm. aspect of, well, what does it really the world need, right? And does the world really need a physician taking care of prediabetes? And if it's, that's mm-hmm. yes and you love to do that, then it all fits in into this ikigai of happen, what brings you mm-hmm. joy and happiness. So I just love that. And, and that, that brings it all together for me, right? So what you love, what you can be paid for, what you're really good at, what you've been designed to do and what the world needs. And if that all comes together, man, we hit that golden spot of health and happiness, right? That's beautiful. And it sounds like you are definitely in that spot. Well, I'm trying to get there. I don't think I've ever arrived, but I'm trying to- <laughs> Well, we're all, it's always a work in progress. We're all yeah, of us, I'm sure. Every incremental part, I'm trying to get to yeah. that next step to that (laughs) all right what's one thing that you're working on or something that you think would have a big impact on your health but you have a hard time implementing it yeah so i think you know as i'm thinking through the whole process of health right and 
health is not the absence of disease, but, you mm-hmm. know, like I love the World Health Organization's concept of the complete uh, social, physical, and emotional well-being, right? That's mm-hmm. really what it is. Mm-hmm. And so what brings health, I think, like I mentioned, is, is relationships. And I think what I've been really struggling with and to really start putting into is how to improve my emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. right? How to get to that next level of emotional intelligence. It's not just good enough to be smart and have IQ. We need to work on our EQ and mm-hmm. how to get to that next level of emoting and relating with people, but also mm-hmm. your own self-awareness, mm-hmm. what makes it better for you and what blind spots that we have, right? Yeah. Cause we don't know what your blind spots. You don't have people telling you what your blind spots are because it's blind, right? Yes, exactly. You can't get better. And so we got to be willing to receive that feedback and take that feedback and improve on it. And then how that it relates to the world and how do we affect the world around us? So that's always a struggle for me. And, and I have to really focus on trying to improve that piece of the emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, just the insight that you have by, by talking about that, I think is huge because I think for a lot of people and myself included in the past, the blind spots were so big. I didn't even realize that was the issue. So, um, so starting to, you know, even just realizing that and knowing it's always something you're working on, I think is huge. A last question is what does a healthy life look like to you, Rob? Yeah, I think a healthy life, um, you know, finding your, your ikigai and your purpose in life is probably the number one. Um, I think Daniel Pink had this book called Autonomy, Mastery, and Purpose mm-hmm. on what drives people and motivates people. Mm-hmm. And if you have purpose in life, you mastered that and you have autonomy to do that, then you can deliver on that ikigai passion and that, that, that life that you really desire to pursue. And that will hopefully bring you to that optimal health, right? Health is the absence not the absence of disease, but the emotional, physical, mm-hmm. mental well-being. And if we can get all to that, I think we understand what our lot is in life and how to make a difference in this world. Mm-hmm. And with that piece, then hopefully your sleep will get better because you're motivated to do it. Your, your nutrition gets better. Your exercise habits get better. You, you don't go for the 185-pound snatches of your head just because you think <laughs> you can do it, but you want to make sure your shoulder survives, right? Or yeah. your back survives that you, you put your ego at the front door, mm-hmm. all, of, all of that things that come together and, you know, to put together for health. Um, it, I think it all stems from that. That is beautiful. Well, thank you. Ikigai, what we're all striving for um, yes. and, and being smart about it and thinking about all the things that we do in our lives to focus on that long-term, that goal, long-term health and not what maybe sometimes what we want to do in the short term. Yes. So, yes. Thank you again for sitting down with me and sharing your story. And I'm just so excited that we finally got to do this. I know, um, it's yeah. so crazy how, you know, I followed your tweets. Pro- yeah, it was probably 10 years ago when I first started following you. And here we are today. Wow. So it's just great to have, um, you know, people to look towards, especially in family medicine who are like-minded and who are kind of fighting for this, this way of practicing and fighting for patients this way. So thank you for yeah, everything and, that you're and- doing. Absolutely. And you're a great advocate for family medicine and just to really push the boundaries of what we think health is, right? And mm-hmm. that's so important because um, we have to teach our residents, we have to teach our patients. That's not just about the pills, potions, and procedures. Right. And we can empower yourself to do your own health, right? And to optimize so true. your own health. So yeah. true. And we all have so much potential 
and um, the the current system that we're working in and just a lot of things about our world in general, I think is limiting that potential of every person. And so I think we can, we can all just advocate for each other and for our patients and for the general population just to, to really push for that, to really push for optimal health and not just be satisfied with being, you know, normal or being okay, being on pills forever. So, yeah. And, and I think, you know, one, one last point, Julie, is that I think it, you, we get discouraged because we, we see the system and it can't change mm-hmm. it. But um, if we just change one person at a time, mm-hmm. gosh, it's so meaningful for that one person. So meaningful. Is, is that you make a difference that one person. And just like in anything, if you make a one difference that one person live, they can multiply and make more differences in other people's lives. And that's yeah. how we change the system from the ground exactly. up. Exactly. You know? Power in numbers. It's yes. so true. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate this conversation and thanks again for everything that you do. Thank you, Julie. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you or someone you know has a story to share on a future episode of Pursuing Health, please write me at info at pursuing-health.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please also consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.